Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with y'all. I'm Chris Colquitt. I'm the RUF campus minister at Northwestern. Uh, one of them, along with Ian, I work with undergraduates. And uh, it's always a great joy to be able to preach to you guys here at Grace. Thank you for all your love for us as a family and for RUF as a ministry. Let me pray for us as we get ready to dive in. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as those in need. We come to you, the one who provides. Lord, we could not know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us, and we rejoice that you have. And we ask now your help as we attend to your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help me to speak clearly and truthfully, and that you would help us all to receive that which is true, your holy word, and in it that we might rest in Christ Jesus, our one and only Savior. Be with us now, we pray, in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. We are wrapping up, I believe, a series on the church today that we've been going through. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2, just after Pentecost, and this description that Luke gives us of the early church. We've seen another number of different things about the church, and this morning we want to think about the church's prayer life. The living church prays. In verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, we read this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The church, the early church was, and the church through all ages has been, and we as a church should be, devoted to prayer. The church, what we are, the people of God, is created by God speaking to us. We gather because God has called us. We gather around his word that he has revealed to us. The church, in a very real sense, all of us together, are here because God has spoken. That's what God does. He speaks. And prayer is fundamental to our identity as God's spoken people because in prayer, we answer back to God. God speaks us into existence and in prayer, in the very nature of who we are as a church, we speak back to God. Prayer is central to who we are as a people. So we speak to God in light of the words that he has spoken to us. And in light of the reality those words have created. We see this in the variety of things we say in prayer. Marshall gave us a good layout of the various things we can pray to God. God reveals to us his glory. He speaks to us in his creation and he speaks to us in his word. And what do we do? We answer back in praise and adoration. God speaks to us his holy law. And he speaks to us his gospel. And so we answer back to God with confession. We answer back to God in faith. God reveals to us his love and his care for us. He speaks great promises over us. And so we speak back to him with our supplications and when he provides with great thanksgiving. Prayer is our speaking back to God who has spoken to us in great love. But before we even get to the content of our prayers, the very idea of prayer, the very reality that we can speak to our God is an answer back 
to something that he has said to us. And that very first thing is this, that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a child of the living God. You are a son adopted, a co-heir with Christ. And prayer, in its most basic sense as the church, is us as God's children speaking to our Father. That's what prayer is. We are the children of God by adoption speaking to our Heavenly Father. To the extent we as a church pray, we are living into that reality, our life as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so this morning what I want us to focus on is is pretty simple. I want us to look at the first four words of the Lord's Prayer. We see those in Matthew 6. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, and what does he say? Here's how you start. Our Father in heaven. Prayer is an address to our Father in heaven. It's an address of children to their Father. So I want us to see today as sort of an outline for our, for our time as we explore those four words and their deep implications. I want to see this. First, that prayer is a living in the reality of our need. Second, that prayer is living in the reality of our status as children. And third, that prayer is living in the reality of our Father's love. Our need, our status, and our Father's love. It's a bit of an outline for us as we get going. Before we start, though, I want to say a couple of additional words of introduction. And uh, I do this because of certain things that may be going on in the back of your head as we dive into this text, okay? Despite what is clearly the practical superiority of mothers in any given household, uh, and the superiority of Mother's Day as a holiday, last week was Father's Day, a a second fiddle in every possible way, and and rightly so, (laughs) fatherhood, fatherhood is a unique institution, it's a unique creation of God, and it's very special, because like marriage, fatherhood is designed by God from the very beginning, it seems, as a means by which he would reveal himself to us. God dreams up the world, he thinks about what he's going to put in it, and he says, I'm going to make fathers because I want to tell them about their relationship to me. And the institution of fatherhood is the, is the metaphor, the analogy that God uses quite often for us. That's a weighty thing. It means that this morning we're going to reflect quite a bit on God's fatherly love. Two things to say here in introduction. First, to the fathers here, myself included, this is not going to be a sermon on fatherhood as such, but if you are like me, reflecting on God the Father's love will both inspire you and convict you concerning your own love for your children. And that's okay, and that's good. If that's a secondary benefit of this morning, so be it. Fathers, your office as daddy is designed to reveal God to your children. You have that office. What a remarkable joy. The second thing to say is this. The analogical relationship, the metaphor, between our earthly fathers and our heavenly father is extremely rich, but it's also complicated. 
And I want to say a quick word about those complications. Each of us in this room has a unique experience, a unique experiential knowledge of fatherhood. Our knowledge of the ideal of good fatherhood comes through some combination of enjoying its presence and lamenting its absence. Each of us have experienced fatherhood in some way, either through its good expression or the lack thereof. And that mixture differs for each of us in this room. Some of us had wonderful fathers on the whole. Some of us had lousy ones. Some of our fathers were present, always there. Some of our fathers were absent, perhaps never there. Some of us can still call our dad and talk to him. Many of us cannot. And so as we approach these topics, regardless of that mixture of experiential knowledge of fatherhood, whether it's the presence and love of your earthly father that you think of, or the longing and lament that is absent, they both point to the same ideal. Whether you celebrate it or you long for it, it is the perfect and good love of our Heavenly Father. So whether with gratitude or longing, we all have this experiential knowledge. So with that bit of introduction, let's, let's jump into the sermon itself. The first thing we want to see is that prayer is living in the reality of our need. Prayer is living in the reality of our need. Our Father in heaven, Jesus begins his prayer as he instructs us. Our Father in heaven. And I want to focus on those last two words. Prayer is fundamentally an appeal to heaven. Prayer is a cry to something transcendent beyond this world. A cry for help, a cry of praise, a cry of confession, whatever it is. And thus, it is fundamentally an acknowledgement of our need. It's an appeal outside of this place, outside of our resources to God. You've surely heard the phrase, there are no atheists in foxholes, which arose either in World War I or World War II. There's some debate. But whatever it was, the horrors of trench warfare meant that it was impossible for a soldier not to be aware of his mortality, his need, and his inability to secure that need on his own. With bullets and bombs flying all around, and this is happening this very morning in Ukraine, there was nothing to do but pray, to seek help outside of this world, outside of this foxhole that we find ourselves in. And whether we have been in war, this basic reality is true. When we face our mortality, when we are forced to see, to see things outside of our control, forces beyond our control, we cry out to heaven. We cry out outside of this world. As a descriptive matter, this is surely true. When are you most likely to pray? When you feel most vulnerable, when you feel most out of control, whether for yourself or others. This means our prayer life, this is true of mine, is often inversely related to my sense of control and comfort. When I feel most in control, when I feel most secure, when I feel most comfortable, I'm least likely to pray. This is one of the reasons that wealthy camels like us have a hard time passing through the eye of a needle. Our resources allow us not to very often feel our need. We can avoid the foxholes and thus avoid prayer itself quite often. This was the pattern of the people of Israel 
In Deuteronomy, God predicts it. He says, this is how it's going to go for y'all. And the people of Israel's life in the Old Testament again and again proves this out. He delivers the people of Israel. He gives them great blessing. They eat and are full. They're safe and happy. And what do they do? Again and again and again and again, they forget God. They stop looking outside of this world. They stop calling out to heaven and instead look around themselves. And they start to serve other things, other gods, follow the ways of other people. And again and again and again, we see this especially in the book of Judges, God brings adversity. And what do they do? When they feel their need, they call to God. God delivers them because he is gracious. I have the privilege of uh, occasionally serving as the game master at Grace Kids. Some of y'all know what Grace Kids. Grace Kids is uh, an exercise in beautifully controlled chaos that happens on Wednesday nights in this church. Some of y'all have seen it. We get kids together, we teach them the Bible, we teach them the catechism, and for a little bit of that time, uh, Diana and the volunteers throw them over to whoever the game master is, which is occasionally me, it's usually a dad, I think, Um, and we put together a game, and the game is somehow loosely related to the topic that they are studying, and and I stress the word loosely, you got to work hard, but the basic point, right, is that is that we would let them run around and get their energy out and that we would give the volunteers a break who have just been with them for 20 or 30 minutes. That's basically what it is. It's, it's, it's babysitting, right? And so, so I invite them up, right? I tell them the game. I tell them the connection to the lesson. I set up the rules and I say, go. And they go and it's crazy and it's fun and it's chaotic. I'm not in the game. I'm standing up here or back there, right? And the game's happening. But what happens from time to time as the grown-up sitting there directing the game? Well, from time to time, the kids leave the world of that game, and they appeal to me, right? They run up, and they have something to say. And usually, it's either a cry for help or for justice, right? <laughs> it's a cry for help. I don't, we can't do it. We can't find the thing you hid. We don't know how to do this game. Or it's a cry for justice. They're cheating. He was mean to me. <laughs> Fix something. That's a picture, right? It's a picture of what, of what prayer is. If you've ever done an escape room, some of you have done escape rooms, there's a phone you can call the front desk, right? Get out of it, like help me, I don't know what to do, I need a clue. Fundamentally, that's what prayer is. We find ourselves in the game of this creation and we appeal outside of it to the one who is in control, to the one who sits outside of the game and who can help us, who can bring justice. We appeal to heaven. Prayer is an appeal to heaven and an acknowledgement of our need. Foxholes and trenches and cancer and lost jobs and broken relationships raise this awareness in our life. But of course, the witness of the Bible is that we live our entire lives in a foxhole. Finite by design, guilty and sinful by the fall, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, constantly in need of God. And so we should be constantly praying. And one practical application here, if you want to pray more, or better, and most of us in this room, myself included, could, could do well to do that, know your need more. Know your need more. Wake up to the reality of the foxhole in which you find yourself and your need before a holy God. 
Praying to our Father in heaven, then, is living in the reality of our need. But there's more. This takes us to our second point. Because prayer is living also in the reality of our status as God's children. Anyone can, and many do, offer foxhole prayers to God. All humans in this world have a natural sense of the divine. It's suppressed and muddled by sin, but it's there no less. And reaching out to the transcendent, reaching out to the transcendent that we sense is there is a very human practice that occurs across cultures and religions, and as the saying goes, even for atheists and foxholes. It's very natural for us to reach out to the divine. The uniquely Christian aspect of prayer, the uniquely Christian aspect of prayer is not this generic sense of need but our status as children of God addressing our Father. Christian prayer is not simply an acknowledgement of that need. It is a living embrace of our relationship to God in Jesus Christ. The church in Acts, the church for all times, dedicates itself to prayer, not simply because it is weak, though it is, but because it it is the assembly of God's children speaking to him as their loving Father. Now here we arrive at what is sometimes a neglected aspect of our theology, of our salvation, and that's a term I want to I introduce if you haven't heard it, which is our adoption. Part of being saved is being adopted as a child of God. We read from Galatians 4, and I'll just read it to you again because it's really good and worth reading. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. Now, so far in that sentence is what we typically, I think most naturally think of when we think of the gospel. We've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been justified. But there's more. Paul goes on, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you are in Christ Jesus, not only have you been justified and redeemed and made right before God, but you've been adopted. You've been adopted into the family of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, the Holy Spirit that came down at Pentecost to the church of God lives in you so that you might cry out to God, Abba, Father. He testifies in your heart that you are a child of the living God and from your lips comes this address to God, Father, Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says this, says, it's certainly a wonderful thing that God justifies sinners, amen, and that as a righteous judge of all the earth, he is able to acquit us. But Jesus points to something that seems to belong to a higher order of things. This judge takes out adoption papers on our behalf, places his hands on our shoulders and says, my child, I want you to share in the inheritance of all my riches and blessings. You will be my son, my daughter from now on. Come with me and ask me when you are in need. If you are in Christ Jesus, brother and sister, you've been adopted into the family of God. Those words are spoken to you. God invites you to speak to him as a child to a father. Another excellent British theologian, J.I. Packer, says this. He says, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. 
The whole of New Testament religion is the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. How does this relate to prayer? Prayer is the privilege, the right of the child of God. When the Westminster Confession speaks of our adoption, it says that we enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. And what is that liberty and privilege? It's the right to address God as our Father in prayer. Not simply, God, if you are there somewhere, help me, something outside this world, but God, you are my Father and you love me, help me. In prayer, we are not addressing some transcendent other, we are addressing our Father. Now, returning to the scene of Grace Kids, three of the kids that are running around like crazy are my children. And to everyone else, to your children, most of them know me as Henry or Margaret's dad. And to them, I'm a grown-up. But to my kids, to those three, to Margaret, Henry, and Beth, John's not in there yet. Who am I? I'm daddy. I sometimes see, like, they talk to their friends, that's my daddy. And what that means is that when they appeal, right, when they appeal outside the game to the game master, they do it in a very different way than your kids do. Do you remember being a kid and talking to a grown-up? It was kind of scary, right? I'm still scared of some of my parents, my, my friend's parents. I get to work up the nerve, and, and, and I see this when they come up to me in the game. They're like, Mr. Colquitt, uh, something's happening, right? My children don't feel any of that. Margaret and Henry sometimes try to play it cool, but Beth, who's the youngest of that group, right, she's shameless, right? If she needs something, she runs up to me just like she would at home because I'm her daddy. She's my child. She approaches me, addresses me with the rights and privileges of my child. And it's true, she has those rights. In prayer, brothers and sisters, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, we are not addressing a transcendent grown-up. We are addressing our loving, holy Father. Do you address God that way? Prayer is our privilege as adopted sons of God. I need to say here that if you're not a Christian this morning, that privilege is not yet yours, but it can be. Receive Christ by faith, the beloved Son of God, our co-brother, our co-heir, and you will be made a child of God, the Son of the Most High God. One additional item to note here in this opening of Christ's prayer, the hour reflects our relationship to God, but it also reflects our relationship to one another. Notice Jesus doesn't say, pray my Father, it says, pray our Father. There's a lot we could say here, but just to highlight two quick things. Prayer is corporate in its most fundamental nature. We are not alone as God's children. Christianity is not a solo sport. And prayer is not a solo sport. 
If you have kids, young kids, or if you used to, you'll, you'll know this experience of them getting together, right? Count, you know, conferencing with one another and then coming to you with a request as a group, right? And in a very real sense, that's what we do as the church. We get together and we address our Father. And that's why we pray in church. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why we should pray together with one another. And two quick things then to say. One, prayer is something we should often do together. You should definitely pray by yourself. But pray together with other people. It's how Jesus taught us to pray. And secondly, prayer is something that we should do with each other in mind. We address God as the family of God, as the children of God with siblings. And so we should pray for one another, think of one another in our prayers, intercede for one another. So then praying to our Father, our Father in heaven, is living in light of the reality, not only of our need, but also of our status as God's children. The third thing then we want to see is that prayer is living in the reality of our Father's love. Our need gives us a reason to pray. Our status as children gives us access. And what do we access when we pray? We access our Father who loves us. We access the love of that Father. In Grace Kids, as I am the game master, my love for my kids controls me, even there. I like your kids, most of them. Um, <laughs> I will help them if needed, right? But to be honest, if one of them is crying or something like that, there are a bunch of moms around the room who are much more capable than me of going to help them. And truth be told, I let them, right? I need to, I need to make sure the game's going. I'll take care of that kid. But if my kid is crying, if my kid is in need, I'm not hesitating. I'm not letting, I love the, the volunteers. I'm going to my child because I love my child. It's my child. I'm his father. I'm her father. My office and my identity as a father is defined by my love for Margaret, Henry, Beth, and John when he starts running around in there. After giving the Lord's Prayer, we read this in Matthew 7, Jesus continues to instruct on prayer, saying, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. And at the end of that passage, in verse 11, he says this, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask them? Fathers in this room, children of fathers, all of us, our knowledge experientially of good fatherhood is mixed, like we said. But there is absolutely an analogy there. And fathers generally know how to love their children, or at least know how they ought. And Jesus says, if you know how you should love your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to love you? For those of us who had great fathers, do you believe that God the Father loves you more than your father? is more capable of loving you than your father, that you can approach him in a way even more intimately and with more security than you can approach your father? For those of us who long and miss and lament the absence of such a father, do you know that your father in heaven loves you that way? That every hope and dream that you had for your father that he failed in to meet, that God meets that times a thousand? That you can't possibly have hoped for the love that God has for you? I have a great dad. He might be listening to the live stream. 
right now because he's driving through Indiana with a car that they were going to sell, but they decided, you know what? Chris and Kristen only have one car. They probably could use another car. And so he's driving from Texas to here to give me a car. That's pretty cool. I'm a spoiled kid. I get it. (laughs) But listen, I know with as much certainty as I can know just about anything in this world that if I have a need, I can call my dad and he's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it even at great cost to himself. He will lay down his interests for mine. In fact, Chris and I have to, to modulate what we tell my parents because if we tell them too much about our need, they're just going to meet it without us even asking it. What a joy that is for me. I am eternally grateful for my father. And yet, I don't think I know fully how much his love pales in comparison to the love of God for me as my heavenly father. God loves you, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus. You are his beloved child. I was blessed as a kid not to know a whole lot about my father's shortcomings. When he grew up, he kind of learned them, I guess. But now as a father, I'm well aware of the challenges of being a father. I know my own shortcomings, and I am grateful that God is not like me. You fathers out there, you mothers who watch your, your husbands out there, you know this. I can be very distracted with my kids. I can be distracted by them, by their competing needs. I can be distracted by my own interests. And as my wife reminded me when I practiced this sermon for her, I can be distracted by my phone. God is not distracted. You have God's full attention. He is a good heavenly father who hears you. I can be selfish. My kids' needs impinge on my own desires, my own hopes for my day, my own wishes. God is not that way. God hears our need and love. He delights to give us good things. And I can be, and this is less true with little kids, but it certainly will be as they grow. I can be unable to meet the needs of my children, unable to fix the thing that they are struggling with. Perhaps you feel that with your children, especially grown children. God is not that way. His resources, his power knows no limit. Do you think of God that way? I want to return to that quote from J.I. Packer. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I confess in reading that I am both inspired and convicted that I may not understand Christianity very well at all because I have not even begun to plumb the depths of God's fatherly love for me. How much do you make of the thought of being God's child? The thought of God's fatherly love for you. Prayer. Prayer is our living into that reality. Pray to God. He loves you. He is your father. He delights to hear you. Praying to our Father in heaven then is living in the reality not only of our need and our access, but of God's boundless love and limitless resources for us. So we spent our time this morning focusing on these first four words of Christian prayer. 
from the instructions Christ Jesus himself gave his disciples in the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. Seeing that it shows our need, our status, and our Father's love. In closing, I want to draw us to the traditional end of a Christian prayer. How do we usually end our prayers as Christians? In some variety of this, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask this in the name of Christ. This asking in Christ's name is not found in the Lord's Prayer, but it is found from Jesus in John chapter 16. Verses 23 and following, he says this, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, there aren't magic words in prayer. We don't have to say certain things certain right ways. But I just want to encourage you pastorally. It's really good to address your prayers to your Father in heaven and to close them in the name of Jesus. Because they point to these incredible realities that underlie what it is to pray to God as Father We've talked about the opening. Let me just say three things about the closing. As we address God, the Father, in the name of Christ, we are reminded of these three things. We are reminded of our need, that we are sinners saved by grace, that we come to God only in the name of another, in the name of our brother, our co-heir, our Savior, through whom we have all of our rights and access. When we pray in the name of Christ, We are reminded of our status as children of God, that we have been adopted, that indeed we have the access of Christ. We come to Jesus, we come to God the Father with Christ's keys. He hears us, he gives us access on the basis of his beloved son. And as we close our prayers, thinking of Christ in whose name we pray, we are reminded of our Father's love. Because the Bible tells us that if you want to know the Father's love for you, think about your dad if he was a good dad. That's a great thing to do. Think about God's blessing in your life. But the very best thing to do to know the love of God, the fatherly love of God for you is to look to Jesus. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you want to know how much God loves you, If you want to come to the Father in confident prayer, look to Jesus. God gave his beloved son that you might be a beloved son. He loves you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us access to you through your son, Jesus Christ. What a privilege. We deserve none of it. We are mere creatures. Grasshoppers don't get to talk to you. And yet you have called us beloved sons and daughters of your own. You have given us adoption through the merits of your son. And so we rejoice and thank you for that. Would you help us, God, to live into that reality, to know your love, to address you as our loving father, not as some transcendent grown-up? Be with us now, we pray, as we worship you in praise, answering back for the good news that you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.